Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Ellen Mitchell with Remax Executive Realty in Hollywood, Florida. Last year, she closed 167 transactions with a total sales volume of $18 million. Her average sales price was $112,000, of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. She operates a team with nine members, one buyer specialist, one team manager, one administrative assistant, one bookkeeper, one field asset services, one appraiser, one virtual assistant, and two team leaders. Ellen Mitchell is the co-team leader of the Prestige Properties team. She has been an agent for 14 years. She works the southeast Florida market between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Ellen worked her way up from real estate office receptionist to agent assistant to licensed assistant to top agent to team leader and franchise co-owner. Today, Ellen's team has a diverse practice. 40% is referral from past clients and sphere of influence, 25% is short sale, 25% is REO, and 15% is geographic farm. Ellen survived and thrived in a changing market by remaining flexible and willing to learn new approaches. She recently started a geographic farm and shares how she achieved a 30% market share after only 24 months. Ellen's success comes from her perseverance. She believes she can outwork almost anyone. Ellen likes to be in the middle of the pack, learning from those above and helping those below. She is a firm believer in masterminds and surrounding herself with top people. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mike. Ellen, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what were you doing before you got into real estate? Well, I've been in real estate my whole adult life. I, was, I started as a receptionist in a real estate company when I was in my early 20s, and I worked my way up from receptionist to office manager to personal assistant that was unlicensed to licensed personal assistant to um, purchasing the REMAX franchise in 2001 with my former broker and current business partner, and here we are today. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long road, but just step by step, but I have been in real estate for my um, my whole business career. Did you have other jobs before you got into real estate? I waited tables, which gave me a great opportunity to work with uh, to work with the public, and um, I had some office and administrative skills. And besides that, no, I was um, 
you know, I was in my early 20s and just had, I would say, jobs, not a career path prior to entering real estate. What drove you to continue on in real estate? You started as a receptionist, then you continued on and kind of took a career path there. You must have enjoyed real estate. I really enjoyed it. I don't think that I ever intended to actually get my real estate license. I just enjoyed the the whole real estate atmosphere, the fast pace of it, that the that things could just spin on a dime, and I I enjoyed the whole atmosphere. So it just it wasn't really a plan, it just unfolded that way. I was working for a small boutique company in Fort Lauderdale, and I knew somebody who had his own boutique firm in Hollywood, and he kept encouraging me to go and work for him, and I eventually did, and that's when I broke out from being the receptionist to the office manager, unlicensed assistant, licensed assistant, and ultimately purchasing the Remax franchise in 2001. How long have you been in the industry? I was licensed in 1998, but I started in 1993. So I worked for five years as an unlicensed assistant prior to getting licensed in 98. When you got licensed in 98, did you start selling real estate at that time? I did. I was a licensed assistant. I worked under the broker of the office that I had been the office manager for and unlicensed assistant for, and so he would give me leads. And I always say I used to like pick leads out of his garbage because he would easily dismiss buyers and sellers because he had so much business, but I was hungry for it and would call people and I was on a on a split with him and I just loved it. I was um you know, just really taken with it. But I remember initially he was encouraging me to get my license because I would be able to do more for him as a licensed assistant than unlicensed. And I had never been on, you know, not getting a weekly paycheck. And that was my fear. And I expressed to him I was a wife and a mother and I was really concerned that I wouldn't make the, I don't know, 35000 or whatever I was making at the time. And he promised me that at the end of my first year as a licensed agent, if I didn't make at least that, he would make up the difference, write me a check to make up the difference. So I discussed it with my husband, and I just couldn't not do it. And that first year, I believe I made $60,000. So I just never looked back. Nothing like a safety net. Yes, yeah. Yeah, but it was scary going, you know, being a, a wife and a mother, it was scary going from a salaried position to 100% commission, that it was the best thing that I could have done. So if someone were in that position that you were in then, if they were in that position today, any advice that you would give them? Well, I I was married, so my husband had a steady income and I had insurance through his employer. So there were other factors that I had to consider, especially being a mother and I did have the guarantee from my broker, who I had worked with for several years, that he would um, would match it. And I probably would have just gone back to being a licensed assistant. So for somebody else going, you know, trying to make that leap, they would really have to look at the whole picture, especially now when health insurance is so important and things like that. And it's a, what I did was right for me, but I think it's a very individual thing. Currently, you're working with a partner. 
in your operation. Could you tell us the name of your partner and your arrangement? My partner is Agnes Gray, and we work together at the boutique firm that I was working for. And she was an agent, and my broker had asked me to mentor her. I was the licensed assistant at that time, and so I was mentoring her. We really both decided, Agnes and I, that we didn't want to be at a boutique firm anymore. We wanted to be with a larger company that had more marketing and exposure than we could get at a boutique firm. And we started discussing leaving the boutique firm, going to another company, and then we had a discussion with our broker. And it was at that time that we decided that we would look into purchasing a Remax franchise my broker, Gary, who was my mentor and a great friend of mine, was interested in doing that but not wanting to take on that venture by himself. So Agnes, Gary, and I purchased the Remax franchise together. And then Gary went out on his own in terms of his sales, and Agnes and I partnered up in terms of our team and our sales so that we could join forces and share resources. And we've seen many uh, business partnerships come and go since we started together in 2001, but it has really just been an incredible opportunity for both of us. And as I speak, Agnes is in Paris, you know, hopefully enjoying herself, and I'm able to be here and hold the fort down. In November, I was in Israel, and she was here holding the fort down. So if we didn't have that, I don't know that I would be able to have the quality of life that I have. So you've been partners for quite a while now, 11 years? 11 years, yes. And I think the core, the core value is we trust each other. I, I trust Agnes 110%, and we have the same work values. We really want to do a great job for the clients. It's not just about making money. We feel like if we do a great job then earning a, a good income is going to be a byproduct of that. But we both have those same values, which I think are integral to our staying together for as long as we have. Are you both the same personality or are you different personalities? Completely different. I like to go out and work with people and I like to explore technology and I work on our website all the time. Agnes is very, very good at the detail work. She will follow the contracts from the assignment of contract through closing, and nothing will get by her. She's also in charge of the finances for both our team and for the Remax franchise, and she's just extremely detail-oriented, loves working with the numbers, loves checking the contracts to make sure that you know, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. And I like going to the conventions and meeting with agents and networking. And I'm involved in, very involved in the board and Florida realtors. So our personalities are very different. And I think that that's one of the things that has helped to make us successful. Because if we both liked the same thing, then part of the business, we would have to hire out or it would be neglected. On your team, your partnership, do you have a formal agreement between you? You know, I know that we should, and no, we don't. I mean, we own the business 50-50. It's a corporation. We don't have a buy-sell agreement or anything like that. 
but we are 50-50 partners in the corporation. Just split everything right down the middle. We do, after expenses. <laughs> and you would each have to put up money like you did in the beginning on an equal basis. Yes. Thankfully, we haven't had to do that for a while, but if need be, it would be on an equal basis. Have you had the problem over 11 years where you both want to go two separate directions? Who's the tiebreaker? We have had that. And usually, if it's something that the other person feels very passionate about, then the one who's more, you know, unsure will go with that with the understanding that this person's going to take that and run with it. And that has worked for us. We have never really had a stalemate, but sometimes I'll want to do something and I'll be very passionate about it and Agnes might be on the fence. And she'll say, if you really want to do it, go ahead. But I understand in running with it that I'm going to be taking care of it, you know, the new project from A to Z and vice versa. So we've experienced that quite a bit over the years. You and Agnes and Gary, you're running dual roles where you're running your own operation as far as being an agent, but you're also running a brokerage. You've been doing this for quite a while. Just to talk about that dual role for a second, how do you do that? Do you have somebody else running the franchise while you're running your day-to-day agent duties, or are you doing both? We're doing both, and Gary is the broker of the REMAX franchise, so any brokerage issues would come to Gary. Any financial issues, any commission questions or anything like that would go to Agnes. And then any agent issues in terms of a dispute between two agents or wanting to learn new technology or training, that would fall to me. I would be the operations person. And it works quite well you know, because we're all in charge of areas that we're really comfortable with. And did you do the same thing there where you set the franchise? Was it split one-third, one-third, one-third? Yes. And we do have a buy-sell agreement with the franchise. Just to complete that picture for folks, how many agents are working in your franchise? We have about 15 agents right now, which is down significantly from the height of the market when we had 30-plus but it is just a reflection of the market in the South Florida area. And, you know, we're, we're happy with that. Let's talk about your current market. Where is Hollywood, Florida located? Geographically, we're between Miami and Fort Lauderdale on the East Coast, the Southeast Coast of Florida. So it's a great area to be in. We have people living here with a large French-Canadian population that comes down during the winter time. We call them snowbirds. They come down um, during the winter and often have second homes or condos down here. So they're a significant portion of our buyers and sellers. And then we also have a large Central American population that has you know, come over to purchase property for investment or a second home. Of course, we have people that live here year-round. And we really have a, a unique location because we're in between both of the airports, Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and two really popular destinations. So it's, you know, it's quite unique. And Hollywood has our Broadwalk. We've got the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. I was actually there last night to see the Moody Blues. We just have a lot going on. So it's a fun place to live. And 
It's a wonderful place to raise your children. Are you on the beach? Hollywood is on the beach. I'm, you know, I don't live on the ocean, but Hollywood, yes, we're, we have oceanfront, you know, miles of ocean, oceanfront property. How much of the overall market do you think is people who are snowbirds or second homes versus people who are living there as their primary residence? Probably about 70% of the people are here year-round, and about 30% of the population are snowbirds or investors. Typically, the people that like to come down for the winters are going to want to live on the beach, particularly condominiums, because it's much easier to take care of. They just lock the door and go home for the summer as opposed to a single-family home where they would have maintenance like lawn and roofs and recurring maintenance like that. Could you describe the current real estate market? We have been hit really heavily by the foreclosure market. So at least 50% of our transactions right now are distressed sales. In the city of Hollywood, we currently have 2,000 homes in the foreclosure process, whether foreclosure's been filed or it's gone through the complete process, there are 2,000 properties just in the city of Hollywood that are distressed assets that either are on the market or will be coming on the market. And that is because we saw so much appreciation, such loose lending guidelines, and the market just couldn't support you know, that artificial increase, that artificial rise. And so we've seen a lot of default. The days on the market are relatively, if the properties are priced right, are relatively brief. Probably 30 days on the market is our average. And we do work for the banks. We work for Fannie Mae, for Freddie Mac, for HUD, Bank of America, and Chase. And it took a long time to earn that business. And we work really hard to keep that business because it does comprise a large majority of our business at this time pricing trend there, do you think that the prices are going up, they're falling, or they're stabilized? I think that they're stabilizing now. They were really decreasing you know, over the last couple of years, but it seems now that they're stabilizing, and I think that it's going to be like that for quite a while. We see people now investing in real estate for return on investment, not for future appreciation. And so a lot of our properties now are being sold to investors because they're really able to get a good return on investment. And also people buying from up north, um, Chicago, New York, that are buying homes. They had thought about buying that second home, that retirement home, and they're deciding to purchase now and maybe rent out because the prices are so low rather than wait if they were, say, five years from retirement, because we don't know where the prices, hopefully the prices will have recovered by that time. Do you have a niche or a specialization? We do. There's a certain area that we farm in Hollywood called Hollywood Lakes, and we farm the single-family homes there. We're very involved in that community with the Civic Association and our lead buyer's agent is on the Historic Society board. So that's one area that we farm heavily and heavily involved in. Another is REOs, and the third would be short sales. And of course, we always keep in touch with our past clients 
and we do get a lot of referral business. Let's break each of those out. This farm that you're working, how many homes are in the farm? Approximately 3,500 homes. We send just listed and just sold postcards. We also take a full page ad in the Civic Association newsletter. We also do door hangers in the neighborhood. And we are involved in the community, which I think is very important. Our lead buyer's agent lives um, in that area. And as I said, he's, um, he serves on the Historical Society and is just very involved in the day-to-day goings-on in that area. Did you or Agnes live in that neighborhood? No, but it's five minutes from our office. And our lead buyer's agent, he's been with us for over five years. He lives in that area. How long have you been farming that area? Probably only about 24 months. A lot of other agents have stopped farming, I think due to financial reasons. And so we decided when other people were pulling back that that was going to be a good time for us to really go after that market, and we know it so well. And it didn't take as long as we had thought it would to really start to make a big impact. We've got signs all over that neighborhood now and have become you know, very well known in that neighborhood. Why did you choose that neighborhood versus the other neighborhoods around it? We chose it because of our proximity to it, because of the price point of the homes, because of how often the homes in that neighborhood turn over. So there were several factors that went into doing that. And I have to say that Agnes really took the lead on that. This was something she felt very strongly about, and I was kind of on the fence about, and I just wasn't sure. And she said, you know, let me run with this, and I'll make it happen, and she has. So she's in charge of all the postcards that just listed, just sold, our ad in the newsletter, the door hangers. She handles the whole marketing campaign for that neighborhood, and she does it quite well. So, Let's talk a little bit about that for the information that, that you're familiar with. How often are you trying to contact these people? For instance, how often do you mail out to them? Every three weeks. Every three weeks. And we had spoken to some other agents that are top agents in our area and around the country, and we had asked them that question about frequency. And they had really said that if we were able to commit to every 21 days, that that would make the most impact. And so that's why we decided to to take that recommendation after hearing you know hearing that from several people. What are you mailing out every 21 days? Often just listed and just sold postcards from homes that we've listed and sold in the area. We'll have properties that are just coming on the market, so we'll be presenting them prior to them hitting the market. And that's really what people want to know is what is my neighbor's house selling for? You know, what is what are they asking for it or what did it sell for? We found, you know, we saw other agents sending out recipes and things like that. And we thought, well, people really want to know what what did my neighbor's house sell for or what are they asking for my neighbor's house? So we try to be that source of information for them. On the just listed and just sold postcards, on the actual card itself, is it a single property or do you put multiple properties on that card? 
It depends. Usually single properties. And then in our, we take a full page ad in the Lakes newsletter, and then we'll show you know, multiple properties. But usually the just listed just sold one property. And then, like I said, in the magazine, multiple properties. How often does the magazine go out? It's quarterly. And that is the Civic Association's publication, so it mails to all the homes in the subdivision. Do you mail out anything other than the postcards? No, we do door hangers as well. If we have a good sale in the neighborhood, Agnes will, she has a stack of door hangers. They're, I don't want to say generic, but they're pre-made. And then what she would do is print off labels for the property address and price. And so if it was a great property that we just listed that she felt was listed at a terrific price, she would get the door hangers labeled and have somebody go out and put them on homes in the area surrounding the home that was listed for sale. How many door hangers do you put out at a time? Are you trying to put out to all 3,500 homes? No, probably probably 500 to 750 homes you know, surrounding the home that was listed. One of the things that we do a little bit differently as well is we have brochure boxes on all of our signs, and we keep them stocked with color brochures, and that's one of the things that we do that nobody else in that farm area does. And we think that it does make a difference because at the end of the day, when the buyer stops and picks up a sheet, they might write down a bunch of other houses on that sheet of paper, but they're going to have our name and phone number you know, on that. So we found that helpful, and we find that our sellers really like that as well. The door hangers, who's distributing those? Is that someone in your office, or are you hiring an outside company? We have um, field asset services team members that work for us just per job, like um, going to the water company and paying a water bill, going and picking up condominium documents. That would be the person that we would have distribute the door hangers. So they're not on salary. They don't work necessarily exclusively for us, and they're available to do tasks for us as needed. You've mentioned that you're starting to get business out of this farm, and it's been 24 months. How much business are you getting at the end of 24 months after focusing on it? You know, we've really done a significant amount of business in that area. We have now um, 30% market share in that area, which we're really pleased about. Um, there had been some other agents who had been very, very strong in that area for a long time, and they're, it just seems that they've pulled back on their marketing efforts, which is what I think has allowed us you know, to get our foot in the door. And then our service, the fact that we do have a full-time buyer's agent, so all of our sign calls are directed to him. He lives in the neighborhood, and he's able to show the home on a moment's notice and knows the neighborhood because he lives there. So I think those are things that have contributed to us taking off quicker than I would have anticipated that it would have happened. Any advice you could give somebody if they were thinking about starting a farm? Definitely. I would say first to look and see if homes are turning over in that area. If homes aren't um, aren't selling, then you could be the best agent in the world, but nobody's going to hire you until they have a need. So I would first make sure that the homes are turning over in that area. 
And then make sure that it was an area that I was familiar with, that I was close to so that I could really service the area. And then I would commit to a length of time, probably 12 months, and commit to a marketing plan and really follow through diligently even, you know, the first month, the second month, the third month, you might not get anything and it can be discouraging. And I find that's when people want to quit, but it's kind of like right before um, right before it's going to happen. So if you decide to farm, I would set a, a time frame of 12 months, choose my area, and I would just be diligent about it for that 12 months. And then at the end of the year, you should get a good idea of, you know, how it went. And I would also start to collect, you know, if you live in the area or friends of yours live in the area, start to collect information that other realtors are sending. I always want to see what other agents are doing. And I want to be different. I want to find something that I'm doing differently, whether it's colored brochures in the brochure boxes or being able to say that my sign calls go to my buyer's agent who has seen the house rather than maybe to somebody on floor time at another company. Those are things I want to be able to point out in my listing presentation is you know, what makes me different. So I would think about all of that prior to implementing a farm plan. How quickly did you start to get some reaction? How soon did you get your first listing? I would say between the 60 and 90 day point, and it's not that we hadn't had any business in that area before, but it was sporadic. This was a more, um, you know, a direct marketing campaign rather than just, you know, we had somebody who called and wanted to list their home that happened to live in the area. So I would say probably 60 to 90 days. They had already seen our signs, but not in the numbers that have since happened. And we would go out and interview with the homeowners and, and usually wind up walking away with the listing. You said that you have a lot of signage in the neighborhood. Are you putting up signs in addition to your for sale signs? No, we have our for sale signs up. We have a rider that has our website. You know, view this property at prestigepropertiesteam.com so that they can go and view a virtual, you know, virtual tour of the property on our website. And... So we really want to drive people you know, to the website, have the buyer's agent's number on the phone, not the office number on the phone. We really want to be able to capture that buyer. And then the sign box with the color flyers. Mm-hmm. And our buyer's agent is responsible for keeping those filled. The flyers, are you sending the calls directly to the buyer agent's phone number, or are you sending them through an automated system like an IVR? We used to have IVR, and I thought it was wonderful. You know, I'm not sure. I, I don't recall exactly why we got away from it, but our buyer's agent's incredible. We have the phone. It's one of our office lines. It's not his cell phone. It's one of our office lines that we have forwarded to his cell phone because we wouldn't want to lose control and be having his phone number, you know, his direct phone number on our sign. So it's one of our office numbers that's forwarded to his cell phone. And he's just great. He answers the phone morning, afternoon, and evening, and and just is out there, you know, working seven days a week. 
Let's move on to the, the next type of business you chatted about, which is REO sales. How long ago did you start working the REO market? That's a great question. And that was a market that it was kind of the reverse. I really wanted to go after that market, and Agnes was a little hesitant. What happened was that our regular traditional sales were, were drying up, and go, not being in the real estate business wasn't an option. And so we had to figure out how to, to recreate ourselves to be able to, to stay in the game. And so we looked at the MLS, what was closing, what was selling. And what was selling was distressed properties, short sales, and REOs, foreclosures. I didn't know anything about short sales. I didn't know anything about foreclosures. And so I decided that I would start attending conferences. I started speaking with other agents around the country who were already working in distressed assets. This was probably about four years ago. And I had people telling me it was too late. The people already had these accounts locked up. I was never going to get in. And I just didn't believe that. I believe that there's enough for everybody and that I was going to earn my way in. And so I started attending conferences like the Five Star Conference in, in Dallas and the REO MAC Conference and learned how to do a BPO, a bro broker's price opinion, which I had never heard of before. And I just got myself educated. And after I did that, I started applying to every REO company that I could. And my resume was very thin on REO, but my sales history was very good in the time in business. And it took some time, but little by slowly, I would get, I signed up for a Equator and ResNet, different platforms that different companies use to hire agents. And I might get an assignment here or there. And I really tried to connect with the asset manager that had given me the assignment. Thank you so much. Really following up, making sure that I met or, or beat any deadline that they had set. And probably 15 months later, we got the Fannie Mae account, which was huge for us. And maybe nine months after that, we got the Freddie Mac account. And then Remax let us know that HUD was going to be hiring new agents in South Florida. And they had a very rigorous application process. And we had to put together a presentation of why we should be chosen. And they received thousands of these presentations. And thankfully, I was one of the agents chosen to work for First Preston, which sells HUD homes. And it just, just kept building on itself. Let's go back to the beginning of that cycle. So it, it started about four years ago. You made the decision to go that direction. You started to educate yourself on what it was. What was the break? What happened? How did you first get your foot in the door? What was your first REO assignment, and how did it come about? Well, I got the educate a lot of the education first and started talking to people in the REO industry, and then. I believe that I had, well, I definitely signed up on Equator, which is an REO platform, and ResNet. And one day through Equator, I was given an assignment, an REO assignment. 
and it was the first one that I had ever gotten. And I remember just being overwhelmed with, you know, how exciting this was and making sure to follow. They give you very detailed instructions, and they really expect you to follow the instructions to a T. And I was meticulous about doing that and keeping in touch with the asset manager that had given me that assignment. And they came, I would say, kind of by drips and drabs in the beginning. It was not a steady flow by any means. And about it was about 15 months from the time that I started that I was hired by Fannie Mae to be a listing agent for Fannie Mae. And then my volume really... Um, really increased, and I had a steady flow of, of listings. And then with that, it really helped to go after other companies to be able to say that, that I was a Fannie Mae listing agent gave me a lot of credibility in the REO world to go after other larger companies. How long was it between the time you decided you wanted to go into REO and you started educating yourself until the time you got that first assignment? That's a great question. I would say probably a good six months. Probably a good six months. But I'm glad that it took that long because there was so much for me to learn. The vocabulary, you know, the verbiage is so different in REO. The whole way that people speak, the acronyms. And so I really had the opportunity to immerse myself in that I'm also in a mastermind group with a group of local agents that are top agents in our market and we meet on the first Thursday of the month for breakfast and a lot of them had already ventured into the REO marketplace and they were very helpful with you know just educating me and telling me don't do this this was a waste of money do this this is a good thing so I think it's important that we seek out other people in the industry. Often people that are not in the same geographic area are going to be more willing to share information with us and to just ask them, if you had to do it again, what would you do? What would you not do? And um, that, that was extremely helpful. This mastermind group, how many people are in the mastermind? There could be anywhere from 8 to 12 of us. My friend Roman and I started it probably 10 years ago, and it was just the two of us. And we used to work at the boutique real estate company together. And then he went on and opened his own REMAX franchise in South Beach. I stayed in Hollywood and opened my REMAX franchise. But we had always gotten a lot of great ideas from each other. So we said, let's meet for breakfast once a month and just exchange ideas, what's working, what's not working. And we did that for about a year. And then he asked me, oh, I've got this other agent. He'd like to join us. Would it be okay? I said, sure. And so he joined us, and that made three. And then his, his mother owns a KW franchise, and she joined us. And we just slowly started inviting other top agents as we were going about our course of business. And so it could be anywhere from 8 to 12, and we just meet at a local restaurant, we buy our own breakfast, and we just talk about you know, what's working, what's not working, what everybody is doing, and we get a lot of great ideas from each other. I always you know, leave with a notepad full of ideas. 
Is there a formal schedule for that meeting? Is it set up before you meet, or does it just happen ad hoc when you get together? What we try to do is to go around the table because some of us are more verbose than others. So we try, usually uh, my friend's mother, Susie, who owns a, a KW franchise, she kind of uh, will help to to keep things under control. And so we'll kind of go around the table and say, okay, Ellen, what's, you know, what's working? What's not working? What are you doing? What are you not doing? Biggest mistake, biggest success, and we'll go around the table and hopefully everybody will get a chance to, you know, to share what they're doing and then other people are always going to be jumping in with questions and follow up. So that's been great. And how long does that meeting last? An hour and a half. It's not, you know, we meet at 8 a.m. and we usually are done by about 9.30 and it's been a great opportunity for us to just share with each other so I would encourage people, sometimes people in your own marketplace are not going to want to share with you. So I feel incredibly blessed that we're all willing and able to share with each other and we've all grown as a result of that. But sometimes you might have to go to people outside of your marketplace. So if you're with a franchise, a lot of the franchises will have forum discussion groups on their own websites. It's a great place to post questions and talk with other agents around the country about what's working and what's not working. If you're not with a franchise but you have a designation, maybe you're CRS, they probably have a forum that you would be able to discuss. So I, I would really encourage people to, to talk with other agents and find out because I know that when I was with that small boutique company, that's one of the things that I was missing was I wasn't seeing the big picture of the marketplace and it was limiting. It was limiting me because I didn't know a lot of the options that I had. Do you do the mastermind meeting at the same location each time or do you move that around? We have moved it around. Now we're pretty happy with the location that we have. Some of us live east and some of us live west. Some of us live north and some of us live south. So it's off of the highway, and you know it's it's a good breakfast restaurant. But we've moved it over time. We used to do it one month east, one month west, and and we've played around with it over the years. Right now, it seems like the location that we're meeting at is working for us. So we're going to stick with that for the time being. Let's jump back into the REO. You've talked about how you got started. You said that after you started to receive assignments, they were trickling in, and you you built it up. Were most of your assignments coming from systems like Equator in those early days, or were you also going after individual banks? No, they were coming through Equator in the beginning, absolutely. Um, and their Equator has training, which I invested in, to learn how to use the Equator system. That was very important because a lot of the banks, Bank of America, Chase, I don't know if Wells is on Equator, but just a lot of the a lot of the companies are on Equator and you're going to receive assignments through them. So, it's just that one person giving you that first opportunity because it can be disillusioning in the beginning. Now you have all this information and you feel like you're ready to go and nothing's happening. But I found just like with the farming where you might want to give up after the second or third month because you're not seeing results that it's the persistence that is going to 
make the difference between the person who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. I'm not college educated. You know, I don't have that. I don't speak Spanish and living in South Florida, that's huge. So there are a lot of things that I don't have, but I do have persistence and perseverance and I can outwork almost anybody. So I think that that having that is really been the key to my success. That if I decide that I'm going to do it, I'm really going to give it 110% and then some. You said that you got in with Fannie Mae. I understand that's a lengthy process. How long was it between the time that you applied to Fannie Mae and you start to actually receive assignments? Well, you apply and then you find out several months later whether or not you've been accepted. And then if you've been accepted, then there is a whole process that you have to go through with them learning. They have their own form system called multi-forms, which you need to learn how to use, so there's some education that goes on before you're going to start receiving assignments from the time that you're accepted. But I would say I know a lot of people that have applied with Fannie Mae and not been accepted, and I always tell them, reapply. And if you check the different websites and you're active in the REO community, they'll tell you Fannie Mae is going to be hiring new agents in this area or that area. So just by keeping yourself out there, you're going to get that information and you'll have the opportunity to reapply. And maybe you won't get in the first time, but maybe you'll get in the second time. And maybe the second time you'll have more experience or it's a different set of eyes looking at your application. You never know what it's going to be. But I think community involvement is huge. They're going to be looking for community involvement multilingual, although I only speak English. My business partner, Agnes, speaks English, Polish, German, Russian, and Spanish. Our buyer's agent is bilingual, English, and Spanish. So that might not make a difference maybe in the Midwest, but in South Florida, it's very important. Also talking about how you're going to market their properties. They're looking for more than an agent to just say, I'm going to put it on the MLS. You know, they really want you to, to go above and beyond, maybe to do a virtual tour for each listing. Maybe you're going to – it could be anything. You just want to make yourself stand out from the pack. We're a, a small women-owned business because two-thirds of our ownership is women. That's a designation that has helped, you know, being a minority-owned business. So you just want to look for any little edge that you have and make sure that you're putting it out there. The time between the time that you applied and the time you actually received your first assignment with Fannie Mae, how long was that time? Well, the time that I applied and the time that I was accepted was probably over a year. I would not put all of my hope into any one account. I mean, I applied everywhere, everywhere that I could. And yes, it was over a year from the time that I applied. Yeah, it was 15 months. Okay, so the 15 months was between the time you started to apply for Fannie Mae and actually got accepted. Yeah. Wow. And then from the time you got accepted to the time you received your first assignment, did you get your first assignment right away or was there another delay? There's another delay due to getting educated on Fannie's system, but that's probably going to be maybe a 30-day delay. After you've waited over a year, 30 days doesn't, sound, <laughs> doesn't seem so long. And then... 
you're going to get an asset, hopefully, from an asset manager. And you really, everything in the REO world is timed. So you get an asset, you've got 24 hours to go out and see if it's occupied or vacant. If it's vacant, then some of the companies will want you to get your own locksmith and rekey it. Some of the companies have field asset services that are going to come out and rekey it. So everything is on a time clock, and every company works differently, and the same companies work differently in different areas of the country. So it might be for Fannie Mae in South Florida that I have to have it rekeyed. In another area of the country, it might be that they have field asset services go out and rekey it. So you really need to, to read all the information that they give you, and they give you a lot of written information. It takes a while to digest. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. After you started working with Fannie Mae, you decided to get in with Freddie Mac, or did you apply to all of these institutions at the same time and it just took a different amount of time to get in with them? Did you say you got in with Fannie Mae first? Yes, I got in with Fannie Mae before Freddie, but I had applied for all of them at around the same time. And it takes, I mean, the application process takes quite a while, and you can do a Google search for different REO companies to apply to, and they have lists of companies that you can apply to in the application process. And that was another thing. I had spoken with some of my colleagues, and I made the decision not to apply to any companies that I had to pay a fee. A lot of companies charge a fee. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD, they don't charge a fee. But a lot of the smaller companies do. We had made a business decision that we weren't going to pay to submit an application. So maybe there are some companies that we could have gotten into that we didn't, but that we also felt like there was a lot of um, a lot of scams going on. And so we just made the decision across the board, unless a colleague of ours had said, hey, apply for this, you know, it's it's worth it. Then, you know, if I heard that from somebody that I knew and respected in the industry, I would do it, but otherwise I would not. There's also a company out there called REO Warrior, and if you submit all of your information to them, they will apply to like 100 companies on your behalf for REOs and BPOs. And so we did that as well because the application process for some of the companies is very time-consuming. Was that successful with the REO Warrior? It was. It was really, um, I got email confirmations from all the companies that they had applied to on my behalf, and it was successful. Um, Yes. Yeah, I would definitely recommend them. And they're recommended. There's, you know, Five Star has an elite group of agents that are members of the force, and we have interviews. Every week they interview somebody, and we have webinars. Um, And we had Tony, I think it's Tony Rosales, the owner of REO Warrior, 
he was interviewed a couple of maybe two or three weeks ago on one of our webinars and um, I used I used them probably nine to twelve months ago but they're just very well respected in the industry so that's a resource that I I think was well worth it going back you got Fannie Mae Freddie Mac and then you added HUD mm-hmm You've got the government trifecta. Right. Currently, which of the three is giving you the most business? Oh, it's hard to say because I don't, you know, I don't like to. <laughs> right now, um, probably Freddie Mac, but it just depends. If you had asked me 90 days ago, it might have been HUD. You know, it, it just depends. So they're all wonderful to work for. They all have really high qualities and standards for their brokers. And if you're not meeting or exceeding their qualities of standards, they will remove you. And um, so when people say, oh, it's too late to get in, those are all tied up, it's not true because they're always like cleansing the system. Ah, so you think somebody could get in today? Absolutely. Somebody will get in today. If someone were considering going down the REO path, do you have any advice for them if they were trying to get in today? Absolutely. First of all, the banks ask that you have approximately $3,000 per asset set aside so of your own monies for repairs that they would then reimburse you. So if you got approved, say with, with Freddie Mac, and you got five assignments, and each house needed $3,000 in repairs, would you have $15,000 to put out and wait maybe 30, 60, I hate to say up to 90 days if you made any errors in the paperwork, it's going to get kicked back and start from the beginning. So that would be my first consideration is, can I afford this, You know, first of all? And then you also have to invest in your own education. I would recommend going to the five-star conference in Dallas where you're going to meet all of the different um, REO agents from around the country, create relationships with agents that are not in your area, and they're going to be happy to share with you and give you, you know, advice because they're not, your, they're not going to view you as a direct competitor. And then you have the amount of detail work that goes into it. Is, it's a lot. So if you're not somebody who's really good with the details, if you're not the, you know, willing to, to do that, it's better not to take it on than to take it on and do it badly and get a bad reputation in the REO industry, which could bleed over to the regular real estate industry. So there are a lot of things I would take into consideration and also manpower. I mean, you still have to be showing and listing homes. So if you get an asset, you have 24 hours to go out and determine vacancy. Then you have to order the locksmith. Then you have to meet the locksmith there. Then you have to take photos. Then you need to do a BPO. Are you able or do you have a team put together that's able to do all of this? Because I know a lot of agents that went into REO and it sounded great and they did it and it was you know, it was not a joyful experience for them. So it's not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart, I would say. It's very different than conventional real estate. Let's go into your other area that you've been working, and that is the short sale, the short sale market. I love the short sale market. That's really my 
my baby because when I see in the city of Hollywood that we have got 2,000 homes in the foreclosure process, I know that that is, that in a lot of cases, that is avoidable and that the people do not have to go through foreclosure. And so I really, I love working with people. I really wanted to get educated in the short sale area. The rules are always changing. Things that were true 24 months ago may not be true today. Someone could have applied for a short sale six months ago that was denied. They could reapply today and it could be approved. So it is, you know, it takes a while. It's not a fast process. But to me, the feeling of being able to help a family to avoid foreclosure and make a graceful exit and sometimes leave with a check for relocation funds from the bank, that feels so good. So that is probably my you know, my favorite thing is working with sellers um, for short sales and letting them know that they do have opportunities. By the time somebody is actually getting notices of foreclosure, a lot of times they've shut down. They probably, probably the mortgage is not the only bill that they're delinquent on, so they're getting barraged with phone calls at work, at home. They're getting mail from multiple sources. They probably have stopped opening it. The banks now are reaching out to homeowners. The banks do not want to take these homes. So there's a misperception in the marketplace that the banks want to foreclose. They don't want to foreclose. If they foreclose on my house, it's going to reduce the value of the homes all around me. And if my lender is, say, Bank of America, they probably have a lot of other home loans in my neighborhood. So if the value of my home goes down, so do the values of all those other homes which they're holding the mortgage on. Foreclosed homes tend to be, we have ACs stolen, copper stolen, appliances stolen, we have squatters, people moving in and saying that they're renters. So all of the banks, in my experience, would much rather keep the homeowner in the home, maintaining the home, cutting the lawn, keeping the pool taken care of, and accommodating showings on the house, working with a realtor in order to do a short sale. Most of us know the property has to be listed with a realtor. And at the end of the process, which could be anywhere from 60 days to six months, the people will be able to walk away avoiding foreclosure sometimes with relocation assistance, and they will have had some time to figure out what it is that they want to do going forward rather than having the sheriff show up at the door, which unfortunately, being an REO, I've had to do that. You know, I have to show up with the sheriff and have my crew remove all these people's things to the street, and I have my locksmith there to rekey the property. That doesn't feel good. You know, I'd much rather assist people with a short sale. So it's just getting the word out there. And I feel like realtors have so much opportunity to educate the public. I'm going to be doing a radio show on the 21st of this month through one of our local radio shows. I'm the regular real estate contributor, and I'll be talking about short sales. I 
have a monthly flyer that I get through the CDPE, and I post them at all the Starbucks that I go to and Panera Breads, any group that I'm a member of, women's group, business groups that aren't realtors, I bring them and I distribute and I say, hey, you know, if, if you know anybody. And I've gotten a lot of referral business that way and been able to help a lot of families. So I would say definitely become very proactive in the short sale if short sales are in your market and you won't have any of the obstacles that I talked about in the REO in terms of putting up money or time or anything like that. People are really looking for an agent that knows what they're doing and can walk them through it step by step. How are you generating short sale business? Are you actively going out to find short sale business or is it coming to you? Actually both. I do blog about it. I do um, have short sale on my website. I do hand out flyers on a regular basis. I do submit press releases on it when there are any changes. Um, so I, I reach out in those ways. I'm currently working with the City of Hollywood and putting together a program. It will be April 18th and I'm working with Wells, Chase, and B of A and the City of Hollywood and putting together a program for City of Hollywood residents where we'll be talking about short sales and we'll have a panel. I'll present for about 20 minutes with a PowerPoint and then we'll have a panel with a representative from Chase, B of A and Chase, B of A and Wells. And I asked one of the city commissioners, the meeting is in her district, if she would moderate the panel, which she's happy to do, and I'll meet with her a week before the event, and we'll go over so that she can have some good questions to ask and then take questions from the audience. And so that was an idea that I came up with, and I went to the head of the Civic Association for the Civic Association for the area that I live in and said, you know, Mel, we've got... 2,000 homes in foreclosure in the city of Hollywood, oftentimes this is avoidable. I think it's just that people don't know. And I was really fortunate that he is a wonderful civic-minded person and the president of our civic association for all the right reasons. And he said, I think you're right. You know, let's see what we can do with this. And so we've been working together to put this event on. And the city of Hollywood has embraced it. They had a full-page article on the cover of our Civic Association newsletter about it. And the city of Hollywood is going to put it on their, their cable show and their website and create flyers for us. And so it's, it's just taking on a life of its own. How many people do you expect to show up? You know, I'm afraid to answer that. <laughs> I really am. We had the facility that we have accommodates 100 stand, 100 sitting and 200 standing, and we really don't know because I'm looking at this as the first of many of these outreach type things. They won't cost anybody anything. We don't want any sponsors or any money, and you know, involved in it. it we just want it to be a civic event. So we we just don't know. And we also feel like since this is the first one, 
we're going to want feedback. What did we do well? What could have been, you know, done differently? Was it too long, too short? What, you know, so I don't know, but um, I'll let you know. Well, about 25% of your business is from short sale or was from short sale last year. How did that business get to you? Did you go out and actively pursue it? Did you send out postcards and letters or was it just people that are in your sphere of influence that needed a short sale? How are you ending up working with the short sale market? That's a great question. No, I don't send out postcards or letters. Some people do and they're very successful with that. They pull from the tax programs to see who's been filed against and, and they do that. I don't because it just seems to come to me organically. I do... I mean, I do a lot of outreach. I'm very visible in the community. I do belong to a lot of different, um, you know, a lot of different things in the community. So I try to bring flyers with me wherever I go to give to non-real estate related people and just let them know, you know, did you know that someone could possibly do a short sale and get a check of up to $35,000 for relocation assistance? That's Chase is offering that. And most people are like, whoa, no, I didn't know that. And then a lot of times I'll get a call later. It's a very delicate thing. And people have to know that you're going to keep their their confidence because it's a very delicate thing for someone to approach you and say, you know, Alan, when you mentioned that the other day, that's the situation that I'm in. So you want to really be um, very delicate about that let people know that if they have anyone, I would never say if you or someone you know, I would just say if, you know, if someone you know, and just let them know that, of course, anything that they say to me would be held in the strictest of confidence, because it's very important. And I haven't had to really pay for any marketing um, for that. Although I am an advanced CDPE, there is a cost to that. And that doesn't... I just feel like that keeps me educated and on the top of my game in terms of any changes going on in the industry because there are always changes going on in the industry. You mentioned that you're on a radio show. Did you say that's a a regular thing that you do or or is it a one-time event? Yeah, no, it is a regular thing. What I did was I got a list. I got a press, a list of media in my area, and I send out an email once a week to a database of just over 3,000 people. And it's usually, it could be a real estate tip, and then it'll always be a couple of houses that I have listed. Or it could be something motivational or inspirational. It just depends. And I put the media in that list. And I was contacted by one of our local radio show hosts and said, you know, I get your email regularly. I really like it. Would you like to come in and we could do an interview on what you talked about this week? So I said, sure. And I did. And I said, if you ever need me again, I'd be happy to to come back. And he said, you know what, how about quarterly? Would you like to come back quarterly and, you know, just do that? And I thought, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to come back quarterly. So I do. I go quarterly. And I emailed him a couple of weeks ago and I said, hey, I'm doing this event on April 18th. Would it be okay if I came in early because I want to make sure that this gets on the radio? He was like, absolutely. So I'll be coming in the 21st of this month so that we'll make sure that it gets a lot of play 
and since it's kind of viewed as a public service announcement, the radio will also use it, I hate to say as filler, but like as filler if they don't have enough advertisements and stuff. So it plays all the time. There's no expense to me except for my time to drive down to the radio station and do the interview. And it gives a lot of credibility, and I've gotten a lot of business from it. On the short sales, a lot of agents have struggled with short sales in getting them accepted by the bank. Do you have any tips on how to get your short sale package accepted? Well, it's changed a lot. Um, Now, most of the banks are using Equator, which I think is a really good thing because now that's just becoming the standard for everybody. And I would just make sure anything that they ask you for on Equator to get all the documents signed in a timely manner, make sure when you get them back from your seller that you make sure that they're completely filled out before uploading them because if there's anything missing, they're going to just kick it back to you and you're going to have to go back to the seller and get it done again. So you want to price it correctly. You want to look at the last three sales in the subdivision, um, the three actives in the subdivision, and price it maybe just above the, or just at the price of the last three sales that are comparable in the subdivision. Because once there's a contract on the property, the bank is going to send out a third party to do a broker's price opinion and make sure that you didn't leave any money on the table. So you want to make sure that you price it correctly. That's one of the things that can kill a short sale is if you listed it at $20,000 less than market value. You want to make sure that there's a a verifiable hardship. A hardship is not, um, I owe $400,000 on my house, and my house is now worth $200,000, but I could afford to pay, but I don't think that that's fair. That's not a hardship. A hardship is, I owe 400000 on my house. It's worth 200000 When I bought the house, I was married, and we, um, we applied with both incomes. I've since been divorced, and so now I only have one income and can no longer afford the home. A hardship could be uh, my hours at work have been decreased due to the economy. Hardship could be an illness in the family a forced relocation, death. Um, So it has to be a verifiable hardship. And the fact that my house is worth less than what I owe on it is, that's not a hardship. It's just unfortunately, you know, the situation that we have right now. You talked about pricing. You're pricing them at the market. Is that the market in the retail arena or the market at the short sale arena? Are you using short sale comps or retail comps? That's a great question. Since the um, distressed market is about 50% of our marketplace right now, there's really no difference. So I wouldn't pull any active short sales. I would pull three closed and three active properties, whether they were distressed or non-distressed, because that is our market. So I wouldn't pull an active short sale because you don't know if that price has been approved or how the listing agent came up with that price. So on my actives, I would pull an REO because you know there's been a BPO done on it and a conventional. And then for my closed sales, I would pull REO, short sale, or conventional. 
and I would look for the three where the condition was the closest to the condition of my property. I mean, if you have an REO that had no appliances and the AC was stolen and there's a blue tarp on the roof because of a roof leak and my short sale is in move-in condition, that's probably, you know, not a fair comparison. Yeah, I was wondering why a buyer would step up and purchase a short sale versus a retail since short sales take longer. You're saying, well, half the market is short sale at REO, so it's easier to find those comps. We don't have the amount of conventional sales right now. I mean, there are really not that many of them out there, you know, at this point in time. You mentioned relocation assistance. Are you seeing a lot of offers for relocation assistance right now? From the banks, yes, I am. Um, Bank of America had a big push in the state of Florida a couple of months ago where they were offering up to $20,000. They're not offering that much right now. I think Chase is still offering up to $35,000. Each bank is different, and they're also different in different areas of the country because Florida has so many distressed properties. They're probably getting more money down here. It's more important for them to not have to foreclose on these properties than an area with low distressed sales. But I'm seeing that most of the banks are giving the homeowners some relocation, maybe $3,000, $5,000. But that's certainly much better than going through the foreclosure process and getting you know, nothing and having a foreclosure on your record. So you would need to check um, with the, if you took a short sale listing and you initiated it through Equator, you could then ask, is there any relocation assistance available for this homeowner? And they would let you know what was available. What percentage of your short sales are actually closing? Mine, I would say probably 90%. I have a very small fallout rate, but I also really pre-qualify. I don't take short sales that I don't feel are a true short sale. You know, I've had a lot of people that have asked me to list their homes at short sales because they owe more than the property's worth, and I'll turn that down, and another agent will take it. So, you know, I'm not going to take it unless I feel that I can really help them and sell the home. So I think it's that pre-qualifying the seller, then pricing the property correctly, knowing how to use Equator and the systems that the banks are using that have aided in my success with that. How often are you contacting the bank? How often are you trying to stay in touch with these short sales between the time you put it under contract and the time it closes? With the bank itself? Yeah, you're going through Equator, so are you touching with the asset manager, the bank, the negotiator? Who are you talking to and how often? You're speaking usually, well, you don't speak with the negotiator until you have an offer. So you would be speaking um, to marketing prior to having an offer on the property. And then you're going to be speaking to the negotiator during the time that you have an offer on the property. And you're probably... I would say you're touching base maybe every 7 to 10 days because they're going to also be sending you tasks through Equator. What's the status? Um, Please provide this document. Um, 
when you take the short sale listing, you're going to want to get two years of tax returns, two or three months of, of bank statements, a hardship letter. But then as you're going through the process, it could be 90 days later that the short sale is starting to go through. The negotiator is going to ask you for updated bank statements because the ones that you collected at the time of listing are now not recent enough. So you're going to be speaking to them, not over the phone. Almost everything is going to be through the computer, probably every seven to 10 days through different things that they're going to be asking of you and different things that you're going to be asking of them. And is most of that communication done through this equator system? Is it by email, phone? Almost all of it is through equator. And that is wonderful because now there's no... um, You used to have to fax documents in, the whole package, you would fax it in, and then the person would say they didn't get it, or the person that you had been working with for 30 days no longer worked for the company or was with another, um, in another department, and you really had to start from new. Since now everything is an equator, everything is there. And so it's not like they're going to say, oh, well, I never, you sent that and I never got it. You can look at it and see that either you uploaded it successfully or you didn't. So, and if somebody is transferred within the bank, the new person can come in, review everything quickly, and, and, you know, just pick up the ball and move it forward. They don't have to restart the whole system. Have you seen a recent shift towards short sale? Have the banks made a shift towards short sale versus REO? The banks have, absolutely. Um, they And they've also really, you know, I don't think that they were ever prepared for what happened in the marketplace. And so the marketplace changed so quickly. They didn't have any systems in place to handle all these defaults. We had never seen this before. And so it's taken them some time to figure out a system that works, and I think that now they have, and that they also see that in terms of their cost, it costs them a lot less to go ahead and do a short sale than do a foreclosure. It is helping them in the public perception to do the short sale um, instead of the foreclosure. And now through Equator, Chase wasn't on Equator, but I believe they're coming on in like the next 60 days. So there is now a platform that most of the banks have embraced that makes it easy. It used to be that every bank had a different system that you had to work with, and it was really archaic going back to to faxing instead of just emailing documents. And now they've, I think they've worked out most of the kinks in the system, and it's allowing them to move forward and process the short sales in a much more expedient manner. So I would encourage people who have applied previously and been turned down, you know, maybe agents that worked with somebody who had applied for a short sale and were turned down to go and reapply. You never know. There's no cost associated with it. They have nothing to lose. And maybe a new fresh set of eyes looking at it, maybe some internal changes with the bank would make a, you know, make a file be approved today that was turned down 60 or 90 days ago. I've seen that happen. Let's talk about your 
other area of business, and that is your past clients, sphere of influence, and referrals combined. That makes about 35% of your business last year. How are you stimulating that business? What are you doing to stay in front of those folks? Well, we do use Top Producer, and we have been, I have to say, really not staying, um, not doing the mailings that we used to do on a consistent basis. That's my my push this year is to get back to doing that because we were so inundated with the short sales and REOs and the farming the lakes that we didn't spend as much time on past clients as we could have. But thankfully, Agnes is very involved in the community. I'm very involved in the community. Alex is very involved in the community. So we just were constantly receiving referrals from past clients, new people, other agents. And I know that if we could do that with, you know, with not much attention being given to it, that if we really place our attention and intention on that, that that number would go up significantly. So that's something that I'm going to be working on this year. But I am in a mastermind group. It's called Tuesdays with Barbara. It's just a very local thing. And we're doing a 10-week mastermind. We did it the last, the second half of last year. And we just get together for 10 weeks and set a master goal. Each person sets their own business goal for what they want to accomplish in the 10 weeks. And then they break it down by week. And I wound up meeting some great people in that group. I wound up getting a short sale listing through that group. I wound up having someone help me tremendously on my LinkedIn profile through that group. So you know, just getting involved in the community in unique ways that would be of interest to you, that was something that was of interest to me, I think are wonderful. I've gotten involved in things that in the past, because other people said I should, and I wound up kind of dreading going to the meetings and I decided that life was too short. There are so many things that I enjoy doing and that that's where I was going to spend my time and energy. I've gotten very involved in the Board of Realtors, which I love our board. And I'm a director for the Miami Association of Realtors. So that's something that I think is very helpful. I know all the new products and services that are coming out. I'm able to help and educate other realtors on the new products and services that are coming out. And and then at the state level, I'm a director for Florida Realtors. I serve on the Affordable Housing Committee and the Communications Committee. So I'm just always learning. And I, I love those, you know, I love spending time doing those things. So I think it's about finding the things that really, they don't seem like work to you. They're just a lot of fun and you're doing something good for your profession or your neighborhood or your church or your synagogue. And a byproduct of it, people are going to see that you're out there and you're doing a great job for a good reason. And, you know, the referrals and the business will flow from that. This business came to you without any formal marketing program. You haven't been mailing or emailing or phone calling these past clients and sphere of influence, and yet the business has been coming. Well, I do email um, my whole database once a week, so I do I do that. You know, I, I email once a week. 
my whole database, but I haven't been doing, like in Top Producer, there are follow-up letters, and that's what I really want to get back to doing. In previous years, we had, uh, for Thanksgiving, we had bought pies, and we had invited our past clients to call in and reserve a pie and then come in and pick them up on, I think it was the day before Thanksgiving on Wednesday. That was very successful. We just were able to see clients we hadn't seen in a long time, and people felt very good about it. That's something that I'd like to re-implement this year. You know, those are those kind of things I think are always appreciated and and fun and nice things to do. So we're definitely going to spend some more time on on those types of activities and marketing to our past clients and contacting them more often. The email to the database, I think you mentioned earlier you had 3,000 people in there. Is that correct? Yeah, over 3,000. How did you accumulate that database of 3,000? Who's in there? All my past clients are in there. The press is in there. Other realtors are in there. Um, Anybody that's ever visited my website is in there. They can unsubscribe, but... I break it down like I do serve on Florida Realtors, and so I have the Florida Realtor um, leadership. They're one category. The group I did last year with Tuesdays with Barbara, that's one category. Past clients is another category. Um, REO Realtors is another category. Media Relations is another category. So we email once a week to everybody. And as I said, it could be um, that there's been a change in the law. It could be just a, last week's was just a motivational, um, little motivational tip. And then it's always going to include two of our new listings, highlighting our listings, one or two of our listings. And that's something also that we're going to tell our clients at the time of listing. That's a point of difference that we're going to be emailing their home to our database of over 3,000 people. So that's something that has, when we go to conferences around the country, I'll have agents say, oh, I get your email every week. I really like that. And that results in a lot of referrals from agents from other areas. When they have a client that's looking for a second home or relocating to South Florida, they tend to think of Agnes and I because they do get our email on a weekly basis. Let's talk about your team. You've got quite a few people running around. Would you mind telling us the members of your team as far as the titles and the tasks? So just kind of go down a list of who's on the team as far as their title and their task. Absolutely. We have our team manager, and she is a full-time salaried employee, and she is on a bonus program as well. Well, I should say the team leaders are Agnes and I, so we're at the top. And then our team manager, full-time employee. And then we have an administrative assistant that works under the team manager, and she does a lot of our marketing. She's also a full-time employee of the team. We have a bookkeeper. She's not a an employee. She comes in and she... She works for other clients as well, and she bills us hourly. We have our field asset services person for every new REO that we get. As I mentioned, we have to go out 
can check occupancy within 24 hours. Our field asset services person does that for us with most of the banks. You have to inspect your properties once a week to make sure that there's, there's been no theft or no change in the condition of the property. Our field asset services person does that. They're not employees. They're independent contractors, and they're paid per task. And Agnes and I made a very specific you know, decision to do that, that we only wanted two people on salary, and the other people's income fluctuates with the market. So, you know, with the bookkeeper, if we have a lot of bills from our REOs, she has more hours. With the field asset services person, if we have a lot of properties that need to be checked on, he has more, you know, more hours. If we have less, he makes less. We have an appraiser. Again, the appraiser is somebody who works for other people as well, and she assists us with our BPOs, our broker price opinions on our properties. We always review them and and make sure that everything is good before they're submitted, but she pulls all the information for us. We have a virtual assistant, and she helps us with our weekly email. I'll have different ideas for our website and go over them with her. She'll implement them. HUD requires that you do a virtual tour for every listing that you have with HUD. She creates the virtual tour for us and places that, all the different places that that we want it shown. And then we have our buyer specialist who works full-time assisting our buyers in in buying properties, and he's 100% commission. You talked about having an appraiser. This is an interesting idea. They're they're helping you with the BPOs. Here's the thing that goes through my head. How are you compensating an appraiser on a BPO when a BPO pays so little versus an appraisal pays so much? I'm trying to get that through my head. That's a great question. Actually, we don't do BPOs for fees. We only do BPOs for our, our um, REOs, so we're not paid for them at all. And appraisers, because at least in South Florida... So many of our properties are being purchased cash. If it's cash, you obviously don't need an appraisal. That the appraiser's work has diminished significantly. So we pay the appraiser per BPO. If it's an interior BPO or an exterior BPO, we pay them a fee, a set fee. And it's probably something that they would not have been willing to do a few years ago when they were so busy with assignments from the banks, but something that they're willing to do now. And they, a BPO is not the same thing as a full-blown appraisal. They're pulling comparables you know, within a, within a subdivision. We've supplied all the photos, and they're putting it together. They're sending it to Agnes and I to make the comments, review, and submit. So... That's the way that that works. What kind of fee arrangement have you set up? If somebody were going to try to set something up like that, what should they anticipate? The BPOs, it could be anywhere from 25 25 to 50, depending on if it's an interior or an exterior and the volume of business that you're giving that appraiser. So, you know, they're an independent contractor. They're not employees of ours. So that's really something that would need to be negotiated between the appraiser and the team leader or the agent looking to employ that. 
But ultimately, your name is on that. So I would never allow anything to be just submitted by an appraiser. It has to be, you know, you have to go in, you have to make the comments, you have to approve it, you have to be the one putting your name on it and submitting it. So they're assisting you compiling the information for your review, but it's your name. You know, and BPOs are scored very heavily by the banks. They look at your BPO to sales price, and if your BPO said it was worth 100000 and it sold for 60000 then it's going to really hurt your grade with the bank, which is going to affect the amount of assets that you receive in the future. So you need to make sure that you have to maintain control and oversee every aspect because ultimately it's your business, it's your name. So you can have as many people assisting you, but with that comes oversight. I think it's a great idea to take advantage of the downward trend on appraisers and, and their incomes as well. Mm-hmm. You're helping them and they're helping you. That's a good idea. Thank you. You've got all these people running around. You've got this big operation. There's going to be agents out there wondering, are you profitable? We are profitable. And that is the reason that we had made the decision. We had uh, more employees on the payroll at one time. And then when the the average sales price dropped significantly, especially in the REO market, it just didn't make sense for us. We had three full-time employees. And so that was why we decided at that time that we were not going to take anyone on as an employee, that it was going to be you know, per task, and that as when we made more money, they'd make more money and, you know, and vice versa. So that that helped significantly. Also, our team manager and our administrative assistant, they both have set salaries, and we no longer offer increases in pay. We have a bonus program for them. So the more profitable we are, the more profitable they are. But you know they know they're assured their base pay, and then they have a compensation, you know, a bonus compensation plan, so that we never get into raising somebody's base pay to the point that if if our price point dropped again or if if we lost a client or something, we wouldn't want to have to let somebody go. And so this has made you know, made more sense for us when we went to our team manager with this concept telling her that we were freezing her base pay but making changes to the bonus program. She had some fear about that. But now it's been several months, and she's making more than she was making before, and she's very happy. But she had that initial fear of, oh, my goodness, you know, well, what is that going to mean? Because she was anticipating a raise to her base salary. So it, it took some walking through it and then her seeing at the end of the day that it was really a better program for her, and it's better for us because if our business did go down at all, her income would go down as well. Not her base pay, but her bonus structure. Ellen, what drives you? I love what I do. I I really, you know, I enjoy it. I couldn't see myself doing anything else professionally. And I really feel like I'm serving the public and making a difference. And now having the opportunity to serve 
the board at a local level and then Florida Realtors at a state level. It's it's just very rewarding putting together the event that we're having and being able to inform people and the real benefit of somebody being able to avoid foreclosure and do a short sale and they didn't even know that that was an option for them. That's what drives me. I just I love being out there and and working with people. That's that's my joy. Ellen, why are you successful? I think my perseverance is probably the the key to my success. Um, planning, persevering. I have a great business partner who I trust implicitly, and we've put an incredible team together. But I really believe that um, that at the end of the day, it's that drive to succeed. It's that drive to for continual self improvement, not to ever feel like you you've gotten there. Um, to surround yourself with people that are much more successful than you are. I don't want to be a big fish in a small pond. I'd rather be a small fish in a big pond. You know, at Remax they say you play better golf with better golfers. And I think that's why my peer group, they just really inspire me to continue to grow and the people that I surround myself with the literature that I read, the the things that I listen to are just always I try to have them always be positive, inspiring and and motivating rather than why can't it happen, looking for how can we make this happen. Do you participate in coaching or mentoring? I don't participate in coaching. I do mentor the agents in our office. We have some um, younger, newer agents in our office. And so I have the opportunity to coach and mentor them, which I love. Eventually, that's something that I would probably, that I would see myself doing is going into a coaching role because I think being able to see somebody at one level and helping them step by step to, you know, to go to a whole new level and seeing them in a way that they don't see themselves yet would be really rewarding. But I see that down the line a little bit. Do you have a coach? I do have a coach. Um, I used to have a real estate coach, Corcoran Coaching, and they were awesome. And I would go back to them. If I was looking for a real estate coach again, I would go back to them in a, in a second. But I really wanted more of a business and life coach. So I'm working with an individual named Wendy Blum, and she's local to me, although she travels back and forth between South Florida and Colorado. And she has just been very, very helpful in pushing me out of my comfort zone. She's been helpful in um, assisting me with the project that I'm doing on April 18th. That's a little, not a little, it's a lot out of my comfort zone. So she's been really helpful in that area. And then just has a lot of ideas. Like I don't, I've never done video, starting to do video and doing video tips and ideas and putting that on our YouTube channel. And just, it's, it's been a really, really uh, great collaboration. So I am currently working with her and, and see myself continuing that professional relationship you know, at least for at least throughout this year and, and maybe beyond. Ellen, if you are going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, 
What would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to go to the board and take all of the classes that are included in their membership because there are so many tools that are available that you're already paying for in your board membership or through your NAR, National Association of Realtors dues, that you may not even be aware of. So I would really encourage them to do that first. And then I think the fact that I started working not on my own, but under a successful realtor and was mentored by him, I think that's a great way to start, to start as a buyer's agent or as a rental agent where you're going to get a lot of experience in a short period of time and you're really going to get to learn to know the terminology, know the software, and know the business. And I've heard some people say, well, I wouldn't make as much because of my split, but you know, I always think 100% of nothing. <laughs> I'd rather have 50% of something. And I learned so much during those years that I was working under Gary that that's what helped propel me to go out on my own. And I don't think that I would have reached the place that I am today had I not had that kind of like intensive four or five years of working under his direction and leadership. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? Absolutely. I'm always, as I mentioned earlier, I'm always listening to things in my car. Realtors spend, you know, tend to spend a lot of time in their cars. And so I listen to agents' interviews. I listen to different motivational things. And I always pick up different tips and ideas and see how I can apply it to my circumstance. And if you just glean one pearl, you know, one thing and say, I think that you know, that I could do that, I'm going to try to implement that, then I think it's, it's worth it, and it makes the ride more enjoyable. So, absolutely. Ellen, I've gotten to the end of the questions I had for today. Is there anything else that you would like to say or talk about that we haven't talked about? I would encourage people to hang around positive people, to listen to positive things like your interviews, other positive um, business you know, business CDs and books like John Maxwell, Jack Canfield, and and just believe that they can do it. And surround yourself with people that are exceeding above you. I see a lot of times that people want to be the, you know, the biggest fish, but I think it's so great to be somewhere in the middle of the pack and you're able to help the people that are coming up behind you and you're able to learn from the people that are ahead of you. And so that's kind of where I want to stay is, is in the middle of the herd. And, uh, and that's it. Well, Ellen, you certainly moved the bar forward. You've been inspired by those in front of you. And you've inspired those behind you. You've succeeded by your perseverance, drive, planning, and wise selection of business partners and peers. You surrounded yourself with the best and you became the best in the process. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. 
If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.